Hello, the internet, and welcome to season 189, episode 3 of The Daily Zeitgeist, a production yeah. of iHeartRadio. This is a podcast where we take a deep dive into America's shared consciousness. It is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. My name is Jack O'Brien, a.k.a. When I'm done pitching pods, I go back on the daily zeit. When I stop, I turn around and do meetings with Miles till I get to the evening, then I do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then. I heart empire. Nano, 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 nano. I heart empire. Nano, 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 nano. That is uh, an AKA to Helter Skelter, courtesy of Johnny Davis. And I am thrilled to be joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Miles Gray! It's Miles Gray, a.k.a. Miles Gray Wolf, a.k.a. the Miles in the Gray flannel suit, a.k.a. the portrait of Miles Gray, (laughs) a.k.a. I can see for miles and miles and miles. Again, that's Johnny Davis. Hey. Doing two for two today. It's been a while. Been a while, Johnny. Been a while. for those a.k.a.s. All right. Yeah, trying to do that AKA just then gave me a real appreciation for Paul McCartney's vocal performance. I think it's Paul McCartney's vocal performance on that. Maybe it's John Lennon, but yeah, man. That was they were the White Album? High- yeah, White Album. I only know it because of the Gray Album. I'm like, oh yeah, that's from the Gray Album. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> then and I'm like, oh, Beatles? Then that means from White Album. Right, right. Well, Miles, we are thrilled to be joined today by... A very talented podcast producer and host, currently hosting This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia, where you can hear him talk to, you know, lightweights like Jill Lepore about a Russian propagandist who traveled the U.S. and saw us in a way we couldn't ourselves. Very fascinating. Uh, most recent episode. Uh, for instance, he was willing to cover the fact that America uh, has a white supremacist, a uh, little undercurrent, overcurrent type thing. He is the story editor on The Line, the Dan Bursky podcast we raved about when we had Dan on, uh, executive producer of Death at the Wing, the Adam McKay podcast about tragedy and basketball in the 80s. You may have heard him hosting 30 for 30 for ESPN, the 538 Politics podcast. We are thrilled. To be joined by the brilliant and talented Jody Abergay. What's up, Jody? Hey, and going into this, uh, I told myself I'm not going to be one of those guests on the Daily Zeitgeist who was flustered by the AKAs, and it is not. (laughs) It is impossible to not be flustered. I know. Uh, It is. It is quite a thing to witness. Yeah. So, it, it, it inspires a different a range of reaction. Some, <laughs> the, my favorite is outright confusion. Yeah, yeah. Like when um, they look around the room, it's like the it's like the best moment. I'm like, yes. yeah. And occasionally you get that one where it's like the the notification of someone just leaving the Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, I'm like oh, <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Mm. oh, huh, okay, yeah. Huh. Uh, or they like in the chat, they're like, what the fuck is this? I'm like, sorry, <laughs> that was for my manager. I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's a podcast. Uh, <laughs> I told you, no fuck boys. <laughs> oh look and i'm wearing my shirt that says oslo city fuckboy there yeah. you go wow i didn't what? even see that uh it was paul mccartney by the way Jack. it was okay good great performance he's I, got that growl I, he's got that growl yeah. yeah i feel like he uh created with that and the end of hey jude i feel like he created uh steven tyler's entire career with oh. that his vocal stylings jody what's good man what's new what can you tell us about esoteric history well, I'm just over here slacking, only doing three episodes a week, whereas oh. you crack, crank out uh, one every day. Right. No, you know, um, it's been it's been fun to do this show, uh, which has been my main thing since I left ESPN about a year ago. But, you know, I'm trying to, like, engage with the world by looking at the past and not having to get dragged into the uh, BS of the of the day, whereas you guys have decided to just stare directly into the sun. Yeah. I can at this point I I could look look into the Ark of the Covenant and nothing would happen. Yeah. (laughs) I would be like, oh cool, light show. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone Hmm, else. I wonder what Twitter has to say about that. It is, I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, that this was like how I designed my my last year. And I didn't even know last year was going to be what it was, but I was Mm. like, I know 2020 is going to be crazy. I want to somehow talk about it, but not actually have to feel obliged to yap about whatever the BS of the day will be. And so my answer to that was, let's look to history and pick little historical moments that yeah. feel like they're resonant. It's a great idea. 
a great yeah. show. Yeah, um, and I slept a lot better than I yeah. did when I was covering the election in 2016. I'll tell you that much. Oh, yeah, I bet. All right, we are going to get to know you a little bit better in a moment. First, we're going to tell the listeners a few of the things we're talking about. Uh, we're going to talk about the Democrats looking for more reasons to play nice with the GOP. We'll talk about what Trump is continuing to do to the GOP. That's sort of a continuing story. Uh, New York and L.A. are back to normal, baby. So we're just going to talk about all our plans to just go mask free and uh, really rub it in people's faces. We'll talk about the pandemic problems at the Girl Scouts. We'll talk about Darnella Frazier, uh, who took the George Floyd video and got honored by the Pulitzer committee i want to ask the overall question and jody as a historian i'm curious for your perspective on this uh, about whether we should continue to cover the ufo stuff i am going to continue to but i i'm just interested in the question of like why people do or don't cover that because i don't feel like there's a historical corollary to it but maybe maybe you can correct me all of that plenty more but first, Jody, we like to ask our guest, what is something from your search history? It's a very good question. One of the things that I was recently searching for, my search, the actual search term was just Deadwood swearing. I don't know if you've seen the show Deadwood, oh, yeah. but um, we recently did an episode on my on my history podcast about Andrew Jackson's funeral, during which his pet parrot had to be escorted from the room because it was swearing uncontrollably uh, throughout Andrew Jackson's life. I guess he had taught this parrot to swear. And I think Andrew Jackson was probably just a salty individual. And apparently during the funeral, the parrot just went off and started swearing. Uh, and so it's, a, it's an amazing story. Uh, one of my favorite tidbits from the historical accounts are that uh, people didn't just find the parrot disruptive, but they found it like rude like several accounts just say like you know the parrot was removed for for not understanding the solemnity of the moment like the parrot's supposed to <laughs> understand, you know uh, you're not just swearing but you're you know you're right. not taking seriously what's going on what's here. wrong with that bird went to parrot finishing school exactly uh, unfortunately there's no historical record of what the actual swears were and so i was trying to get a sense of what like mid 18th century swearing would be and i think right. deadwood is my best analog for yeah that. that's so. a great question i always kind of assumed that deadwood was a heightened like almost like shakespearean like people didn't actually talk like this but the, it's fun to just kind of hear reality described in these ways like it where did you find that deadwood is actually an accurate portrayal of how creatively people swore back in the day i think it's somewhere between the two so i think that the creators of deadwood were careful to only use swear words that were of the time. I think right. the amount of swearing, I mean, it's something like 72. Yeah, yeah. Se there's like 72 cocksuckers in the in the pilot or something. Right, right. You know? That maybe, you know, there weren't people like that. But I think the, um, I mean, you know, you look at you look at swear words. There's some interesting ones from back, you know, from back then. But it's just a lot of motherfucker and cocksucker, too. Right. Those are pretty big. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the classics. Very few fuck boys in the first yeah. episode of uh, Deadwood, <laughs> though. <laughs> what uh what's something you think is overrated i thought yes was it on yesterday's show that someone said uh on your show yesterday that they said going out is overrated mm. i think oh, that's right yeah 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 i i kind of actually i think that may have stolen mine i kind of am finding myself getting back to the normal of saying no to stuff <laughs> right, like, right. As, and we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about the return to normal later but um i find it very liberating to know about to like do what i usually do which is have all these wonderful things i could be doing and then say no thank nah. you i'm just going to stay home yeah so that is my that is my return to normal the wave of relief when somebody cancels is uh like when somebody's like, ah, I can't do that. Oh, or like one of our kids got in the sick. Yeah. So like we can't do the play date like that is, you know, other, they say introverts like get life from being alone and extroverts get life from being around people. I get life from people canceling, canceling plans with right. me. The extremely specific phenomenon I'm undergoing because I'm on the East Coast is um, plans to watch basketball games that on the East Coast start during the playoffs. East Coast start at like fucking 10 p.m. Right. right. And I'm like, but I still want to get together with friends and we're going to watch basketball. This is great. We can watch sports together. But, you know, that game's going to end it. I mean, I'm going to fall asleep halfway through that game. Right. Uh, yeah, and then when game. someone cancels on me, it's like, oh, great. I can fall asleep on my couch in peace during this game. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I, I get like sometimes there are those moments you're like, damn, I, 
maybe maybe this doesn't happen this weekend. And then you get like the text that it isn't. I go to church that Sunday. Like, <laughs> God is God. real. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't, God I, I wasn't believing, good. man. And then you came through and you, you canceled that barbecue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> food does not taste good when they cook. Oh man. The NBA playoffs though. What a, I feel like those are, I feel like the plans for the NBA playoffs are being canceled. Everybody's getting hurt. It's I know. Kind yeah, of a bummer. Yeah. A bit of a bummer. What, uh, what's something you think is underrated? I, this might be sacrilege to say, but I think um, listening to anything other than podcasts is underrated. And I cannot tell you how consistently it feels like a miracle whenever I just like remember that I can listen to something other than a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm like, like oh, music. music. Oh my yeah. God. Like, who would have thought? This is amazing. Uh, you know, or like audiobooks. I mean, I listen to a ton of audiobooks, but I just, I mean, I work in this industry it's what i do i love podcasts but but the, like there's just something magical about giving my ears something else to listen to for sure. and I, and it feels like fresh and new every time yeah yeah that's my 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 search constantly is for new music because that's like the one dragon i keep chasing is like when you just hear a, like a new artist or like a new album or that you're like where was this my whole yeah. life yeah, yeah and that to me is like some of the the that's what the juice of life is but yeah i find myself really leaning into that although i've been the audiobook pendulum has been swinging very aggressively back into my life again so yeah i listen to i would say the majority of what i listen to that's not music is, is audiobooks instead of podcasts hit me point. uh hit me with a good audiobook that you've i'm listening to. i'm listening to um uh, a brief history of seven killings have you heard that marlon james yeah, yeah. Or, or read that i have read that with my ears yeah, there you go. Uh, really and really well, well read. Yeah, but, uh, brilliant book. I will say, of course, to undercut myself, Marlon James also hosts a really good podcast. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. You, should, you can go listen. To Wait, him. what he, is he this podcast? Does, he does this amazing thing. I forget what it's called, but um, it's it's a podcast that he hosts with his editor, and they just have an amazing relationship. And it's the kind of thing that like. I feel like a really good novelist and their longtime editor have a type of relationship that's yeah. probably unique in the in the world, right? And so they have that and they just talk about books they love. But it's, you know, it's really based around their chemistry. But it's like so open and I mean I wouldn't I don't know. I've been people's editor and I've had editors. I don't know if I would ever have those like really honest open conversations, knowing that then at some point I'm gonna have to you know, send them my work and they're going to have to tear it apart or right. we're going to have to, I don't know, but uh, it's a, it's a really great, it's a really great podcast. <laughs> so underrated is, is his podcast. I know, I know. <laughs> somehow, somehow came back to recommending a freaking yeah. podcast after all this. Miles, what do you read? What do you, uh, what audio book do you read? My Life in Red and White by the man, former manager of Arsenal, Arsene Wenger, and it's Ooh. narrated by him as well. And he just has a fantastic perspective on life and soccer, football, as it were. And I think for a lot of fans of Arsenal, myself included, like there are a lot of things that happened during his tenure that he never really spoke about with much depth. He wasn't really always like giving like the most sort of open interviews. But in this book, he's able to really speak about how he saw player management like he you know he like has a background as an economist and that factored heavily into how he even like managed trades and things like that so there are there are moments as fans are like why why would he trade this person or like what's going on like why what's why don't we keep these people and then you find out like sort of from from his perspective so it's a nice like sort of post-mortem on his time there and his voice is just you know classic miles do you do you know that show desert island discs that bbc show it's I've like, heard of it. Yeah, it's like been running for like eighty some yeah. years now. But it's basically a guest talks about the five or eight records they would take with them onto a desert island. But it's yeah. sort of an excuse to talk about. But he did one of my favorite desert island discs. Oh, really? In recent memory, if not of all time, it's just phenomenal. So go check it out. But yeah, he's and he's got a great voice. Yeah, and very thoughtful guy. And you know, yeah, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I, but I admire him. Yeah, changed the game, and now he's. Now he's wrapped up in FIFA, so he can't really even speak sp scathingly of this body that is probably actually ruining the game. But, yeah. hey, you know, that's that's how they get you. I can give a uh, anti-recommendation for a <laughs> audio book. Don't is, get this one, folks. No, you should get it, but just don't do what oh. I did. I fell asleep listening to Blood Meridian. Oh, uh, no, 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 other, no. You don't want to do that. Night. Oh, boy. No, 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 no. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then I was like, why? <laughs> why am I so, like anxious today yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah it was because uh Woo. blood meridian was dancing visions of blood meridian were dancing through my head i thought it would give me like some 
insight into, you know, we, we need to know about Texas now as <laughs> as they're about to descend into an apocalyptic post-electricity hellscape. Uh, I was like, let's let's get into this blood meridian I've been hearing so much about. Yeah, that's that's fucked up. Uh, I don't. It? I don't know who narrates it. Okay. I just did uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, narrated by uh, Lawrence Fishburne, and that was fucking amazing. Narrators can do, yeah, so much. But Jody, just based on your uh, podcast, I was curious if there are any like esoteric th- moments in history or esoteric kind of trends in history that you think are kind of underrated in terms of understanding the the current zeitgeist and kind of modern America? I'm sure there's a ton, but like yeah. any hmm. one that sticks um, out to you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I I try and be open. You know, part of this is like you bring a lens of your own. And so I, I'm one of these people who often, I kind of feel like every story is a media story. And so, you know, I just feel like in every conversation we have, at some point it comes down to just the like, radical transformation in media that goes back further than maybe, you know, Fox News came around in the early 2000s or in the in the right. late 90s. But, you know, you th- um, and my co-host, Nicole Hammer Studies, wrote an, an amazing book called Messengers on the Right and wrote, a you know, and, and studies a lot how especially the GOP came to really um, radicalize around new media in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But that's that's the kind of thing that I always feel like doesn't get right you know it doesn't get rated properly it's just the way in which we've just been fractured intentionally by uh, a changing media landscape uh so there's just all sorts of stories of people who were doing stuff in the 50s and 60s and 70s where you're like oh that's the blueprint that we're just seeing right now you know right facebook's just facebook's just the latest iteration of of you know yeah. the way in which it just in which, took all the breaks off yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Jill Lepore on your most recent episode was talking about how the current culture wars are basically the modern like leftovers from the uh, Cold War, not the leftovers, but no, it's basically yeah. they kept the Cold War going by attacking left wing politics within America. Yeah, I had I actually, you know, when she said that it was I'd, first time I'd ever heard anyone really frame it that way. Yeah, I emailed a too. few people and been like, you know, but, but basically she said, you know, and this is the brilliance of Jill Lepore was just a sort of like tossed off comment. But she was like, you know, when we, quote unquote, won the Cold War, all of the moves were still there. And so we just turned those inwards and we started fighting the Cold War with each other. And I was like, oh, right. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was a, it was a very good insight. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about culture wars. And we're back. And, you know, there are the culture wars that we were just referencing before the break. But then there's good old bipartisanship that is the cure-all. To that and uh we just need to be nicer to each other uh i think that's the end of that story right miles yeah bipartisanship will save us it's not a lame-ass excuse for not advancing any real transformative <laughs> legislation not at all that's not the case it's not that we have people that are completely uh not up to the task of governing in the moment but yeah this bipartisan shit is <laughs> becoming it's just like so in your face at this point there have been so many times that the Republicans have shown themselves to not have any interest in governing in any way. Like there's merely just a bunch of racist snakes piled up in a trench coat who are trying to grind like the progress of society to an absolute halt because it seems to be the only way they'll be able to sort of maintain their power or to just kind of do away with elections as we know them. But now, you know, first it was like, the there was the the stimulus bill where it's like, well, let's work with Republicans. And they did. And they still didn't vote for it. But then in, that wasn't enough to say, huh, maybe these aren't people worth talking to. Maybe their mindset is such that it's not there's nothing they could bring to the table that would elevate or we can find any kind of compromise on. And so now we're just seeing more examples. Like recently, we talked about how Mitch McConnell said he would intervene if Trump's picks just got way too like out of left field for them to actually win elections. But part of that interview with Hugh Hewitt was this other thing that he said was essentially, if as long as I'm alive and we, we control the Senate, the Republicans do, I will never advance a Supreme Court pick that comes from the Democrats. Never. You can count on that. 
and I don't care what you say. I know I, we had the thing where I said, well, Merrick Garland, that was different because an election year. But then when it was Amy Coney Barrett, we got the hyperspeed people mover, not even a red carpet, just to be like, let's fast track this person straight into the Supreme Court. It's all ringing very hollow. And now we're sort of encountering the same thing with the infrastructure bill, where it's about of like, well, let's get some bipartisanship going. But all of their concerns are sort of rooted in like nativism or like some oligarchical ideology that there's no room for things like, you know, climate change, like really addressing that in this bill, because that's a way to help the economy and also change our dire situation. So, yeah, we're seeing just more and more of like complaining about bipartisanship with no one really offering like like actually saying the hard bits out loud of, well, we need to move forward without them. I'm wondering when he says that he would never allow like a Democratic Supreme Court nominee to move forward. Like, is he doing that to like, do you think he wants the Democrats to try to load the Supreme Court because then it would be unpopular? It would like get kind of put things more in the sort of all out warfare that he feels most comfortable in, because that's just such a needless like concession to make of just like, yeah, I think no, you're, fuck I, y'all. I think you are overthinking it. Yeah. I mean, that that that's almost getting at like 3D chess kind of um, yeah. Yeah. stuff. And I just think the GOP just has no. goals yeah. and they say what they want to do and they do what they want to yeah. do. And that's it. And so I think when, you know, it's like, um believe him you know when he says it and they'll change the rules you know and and the rules will just sort of be the rules that are most convenient at any given moment and uh it's a game that the gop is like perfectly willing to play and does not feel there is no discordance in their head about it that's just the like they're, they you know no no one in the gop is like feeling bad about this behavior or feeling worried about being you know charged with hip- hypocrisy or whatever that's it's just the game that they play and i think that's the thing there's just an asymmetry in terms of the different the games that the game that republicans are playing and the game that democrats are playing yeah i think republicans can tell like the writings on the wall in terms of the popularity right. of their party so it behooves them to go all out just like let's do everything. Let's try and gerrymander the fuck out of these districts. Let's suppress the vote as hard as possible. Let's do whatever we can to eke out these majorities because it doesn't seem like the party's going to grow based on them just screaming like socialism's going to antifa your guns and th- th- that's for a very select group of people. And yeah, I think because of that, the Democrats are looking at it with this calculus of like well, then democracy will die. Like, I mean, big D Democrats have been sort of trying to defend like, well, we, we have to try and make it work, because if then we're not participating democratically speaking, then then nothing works. And then we're in this terrible situation. But it completely sort of ignores the fact that one side of this is a group that is com- has a complete like an antithetical agenda to democracy. So how do you then like, what what are you preserving exactly like with this sort of, you know, pie in the sky idea of bipartisanship? Yeah. And I think that that gets to I mean, so much of our culture wars and political wars now are just I think are people both willfully and just sort of maybe subconsciously like defining key terms in in radically different ways. And so I think that there's just a definitional gap with the word like bipartisanship. And there's this sort of old school notion of bipartisanship being within the Senate. You reach across the aisle and you talk to the 50 people or whatever it is on the other side of the aisle. There's another definition of bipartisanship, which is doing stuff that is broadly popular. And I feel like Democrats, for a bit, were starting to make that argument. I think now there's still this lingering fealty towards bipartisanship is within Washington, as opposed to things like infrastructure, things like healthcare, you know, are broadly popular. Uh, And if you can rename, you know, if you can redefine bipartisanship to that, we're going to do populist things that have wide appeal. Then maybe you start to get, you start to get somewhere. Though I think, Miles, to your point, I think the Repu- the GOP is, you know, with clear eyes, starting to move away from that notion of our job is to do stuff that has wide appeal. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the word populist and like that's a word that people use to describe Trump. And it's like kind right. of the opposite of of that. Like he. Well, it's a populist appeal, but it's right, an incredibly right. narrow path, uh, you know, electorally. Right. And his populist appeal is to a small 
portion of the of the right. population. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, that yeah. it's the trappings of populism. Right. We yeah. associated racism with populism early on, and I feel like that's racism's been pretty popular for a while, though. To be yeah, fair. yeah, yeah. But I feel like it's becoming <laughs> it's less been polling popular. pretty well in this country. <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah. Uh, but wait, can I can I say one thing, just Miles, as you were talking about your definition of bipartisanship? Also, it made me think of. My daughter, who's just turned four, and we're trying to teach her about sharing, and I think we're doing a pretty good job. But she has now, I feel like, overlearned what sharing means, which mm. is, you know, I have something, I'm like eating a sandwich, and she tries to grab it from me, and she's like, "We're sharing," right? You know, and I feel like that's sure. that's sort of how Republicans are thinking <laughs> right. about bipartisanship, like bipartisanship. Sure, yep. like, let me have that. We're doing yeah. it my way, right? That's bipartisanship. Bipartisanship uh, is you don't say no to me. <laughs> Right. What the that's fuck's right. the deal here? And that that's how Democrats very much see it. And that's why, like, it's really frustrating when you well, now you have like Ed Markey and, and Jeff Merkley saying, like, we're not going to vote for some watered down infrastructure bill. Like, we give a shit about the climate. So if those things aren't actually articulated in the legislation, we're not going to support it. And that puts them in a really tough spot because how what, are you going to get 12, 12 Republicans on board? I don't know. And I right. think that's what a lot, there's a lot of hesitation even within the House. Like they're saying, like, what is a bill that's going to actually get support in both chambers? Because the watered down version, you're going to have defectors on like the progressive end who don't want to support it. So then what's the math there? And that's led to, you know, one of Biden's advisors going to the Hill and basically saying, like, look, there's two ways we do this. One is in seven to 10 days, you figure out how to get Republicans on board. And if not, we'll just try and just smash this through under reconciliation. So. We'll see where that ends up. But uh, yeah, the first time I've heard them be like, we'll do it without them. But will they? Can they? But do you think there's any any benefit to putting something out there that at least feels like it could get 60 votes just to get some Republicans on the record uh, voting against something that is just like super simple, super straightforward, has all that bipartisanship? bipartisanship I don't know. I mean, it depends. I don't know. It's really hard to know, like who that appeals to, because I'm clearly like in my own echo chamber and bubble and how I look at the politics on the Hill. And I have a calculus I use to determine if I want to support a party or not. And I don't know if some people are just think of it seems like the mainstream or a lot of the mainstream Republican view is just say no to everything Democrats do. Like we're so pissed off about the election that all we can do is just burn the house down. And so I'm not sure if that as much as like there have been these like moves to try and get Republicans on the record or try and coax them out, it doesn't seem like it's happening because Trump still has so much. He has so we carry. He has just so much influence still. So right. I, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. It's a hard. It's a hard one to predict. There was a article in the Washington Post about like but two of the leaders who are basically being blackballed by the Republican Party because they disagreed with Donald Trump on like one individual thing. Republican Tom Rice of South Carolina, I think, voted to impeach Trump after the insurrection. And another kind of Chip Roy in Texas voted to certify the election results. Uh oh. And those two, like, one off decisions, they've agreed with Trump on literally everything else. Those two one off decisions, they're like, yeah, that I signed my political death warrant by disagreeing with him once. And now. I'm being primaried from the right. So that's the threat. I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about this. What is the actual? You hear it said all the time. You right. know, the GOP is scared of Trump, and I think for a while in 2016 and 17 and eight, even into 18, you know, there was a real threat of like Trump be it, you know, that you could get primaried. Trump can swing elections. I don't think that threat really is there anymore. I think Trump is a political liability. So what is the threat? That's what I'm trying to figure out. But when you say he's a political liability, like, do you, do you think that he can't win, like, another election at this point? I think it would be very hard for him to win another election. I huh. think he stuck his nose in... I mean, it was very hard for him to win in 2016. Like, right. People, right. people weirdly, like, talk about underrated. Like, people weirdly forget that was, like, the most Rube Goldbergian way to win an election ever. Right. Um, and people have forgotten that. Not to diminish, you know, the consequences of it. But, um, but I mean, you know, he stuck his nose in Georgia in 2020, 2021, and, um, or sorry, 2020, yeah, and um, probably lost that election. And I just, I think that threat, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you know, I'm, again, I'm curious what you think is the actual threat that a, to a, that a Republican elected official feels if they cross Trump, I'm scared of X happening. 
I think it's like there's like anecdotal stuff like Kinzinger has talked about how much his life's become a hell, like with constituents, like bombarding him with calls or harassing his family or his family harassing him. Because I think in general, they're not really they're not operating on principle. They're operating on what's popular or what gets the most cheers for them at a rally. So like if the Trump thing helps them, then I feel like that's what they were gravitating towards. And just any bit of turbulence that occurs from their base because yeah. there maybe be like, you know, vocal MAGA people in their in their constituency, that hearing those words is enough for them to think that Trump very much has his power. Like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm also curious to think because there are a few Republicans who said, no, nah, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm right. this is what I believe. Come at me. And for, increasingly, they've said, hey, I've had to spend more money on security. And I don't know if those sort of anecdotes sort of are the, the sort of the backdrop for a lot of these people's perception yeah. that. This guy can make things really hard for you. But when you uh, but I totally agree when you look at the people that he wants to run, like, how could you go from people who are like on paper, like objectively, not to say that I agree with their politics, but from a purely 50 percent plus one winning strategy point of view that you have viable candidates who just just because they're not MAGA, you're going to flip them for someone who is completely not competitive in the same district. That's where I think. Like, cause it happened in 2018 too. Like there, he put out a bunch yep. of weird people and they didn't, they didn't, they weren't up to scruff. Yeah. So I don't know if it's going to take another cycle like that. And maybe they go, man, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Like we're, we're going to lose the party. But I don't, I don't know how many of those Republicans are there who are thinking we're going to lose the party. Cause there, there's these new batches like, Hey, we're here for nativism and white nationalism and, right. you know, making hot, giving hot takes on the Holocaust. Yeah. I think I'm just like blown away by the fact that one of the two major parties in the U.S. is essentially openly authoritarian. Like, yeah, the thing that they disagree with is an open and fair election. And like, that's what gets you blacklisted in within that party now. Right. Well, that's and part of that is what comes with when you're, you know, your singular goal is retention of power. And then you're clear eyed about the fact that you can't really do that through normal means uh you know that's how you end up being an authoritarian but you know i i also think that one under discussed current in the sort of like engine of the modern gop is like anti anti anti-trumpism right i don't think it's necessarily pro-trumpism but i do think this like culture war own the libs i feel like since the Mueller report almost when the gop convinced itself that like Oh, the Mueller report was there was it was a sham. There was no Russian collusion. Liberals have gone around the bend, you know, yada, yada, yada. I think that anti anti Trumpism for like the Lindsey Grahams of the world, I actually think that's what's making them tick. It's this sort of like anti liberal thing more than it is core fealty to Trump, if that if that Mm. distinction makes any sense. Yeah, it's just I guess that's what it's hard when all of their rhetoric is tied up in defending him or defending his actions still. And then that's when you're like, well, then what is it exactly like that? What is this other dimension or this influential, you know, lever of power or this force that we're not able to see with our eyes or ears that's also affecting them? Because, yeah, at the same time, you have Lindsey Graham like he would have won if the Wuhan lab leak thing was properly investigated. Like, what? You're still talking about this? What do you owe him? Like, what's going on? But I feel like at some level. I thought, you know, maybe Liz Cheney and the old school Darth Vader wing of the GOP would be able to do something. But seeing that that didn't have much sway, I think, shows that there's definitely like a different end game for these people. Yeah. And just in other GOP news, Dana Rohrbacher, uh, who we used to talk about, is no longer in power, a super arch conservative uh, Trump supporting congressman. It was recently pictures revealed that he... Uh, breached the police barricades at the insurrection and was like there kind of breaking the law. Wow. So that's one direction that, you know, Trump can take your career is you're just <laughs> <laughs> you're there. I, yeah. Well, I mean, Dana Rohrbacher, I mean, he went he fought with the Mujahideen against the, the Russians in the 80s. Like he went to Afghanistan like he's he's always been like, hey, where's the party at type uh, energy <laughs> always where you're like oh wow there's like a really interesting photo of him like with like a kalishnikov and stuff in afghanistan in the 80s very uh, interesting image he was just born to be in it right yeah (laughs) better work line yeah he's just born to be in it (laughs) exactly (laughs) oh man what a inauspicious beginning to to that campaign 
Man, oh, yeah. I was just born to born to be in it. Now watch this kickflip. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about New York and LA getting back to normal. And I yeah, I, I just I just brought this up more because like it's more of just a feeling I have around all of there's like this fanfare about reopening and like, you know, you have Cuomo being like, you know, we can go back to life as we know it. And other people saying, like, you don't have to live with fear of the virus anymore. And like, we can we can go back. And these like all of the, the verbiage being used just feels like it's not acknowledging like how traumatic this entire ordeal has been. And there's like a there's like a dimension of acknowledging the humanity of the pandemic that I feel like really missing from all of like the headlines and, you know, news stories. It's like, hey, man, like the the L.A. galaxy is going to full capacity. And like, isn't that great? Because at the end of the day, I feel like there's so many people who have gone through so much this last year yeah. and have had to compartmentalize. And then on top of it, like the way people are even looking at their work and like how we, you know, we saw all of the like the grim realities of like the ills of our society and who reaps the benefits and whose labor is being exploited while we just like give fancy labels like essential without the real like material acknowledgement that what they do is essential to the, the country running. And yeah, there's just there's just something that like rings this hollow that I'm just I don't know. I'm 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 more curious to see how everyone else is sort of seeing that because I feel like all of the messing is just like, oh man, that's over. Phew. Okay, great. Yeah. It's all come out. It's over, guys. And nothing happened back then. That was the last year. None of that happened. Like it's I don't know. And not to say that we have to dwell on it, but on some level, I feel like part of the reopening should have a dimension of like wellness to it or acknowledging yeah. like how you like acknowledging that. It was a fucked up year for many people, unless you're at a certain socioeconomic level. Yeah. And I think if we don't acknowledge that out loud, it will be acknowledged in some other like weird cultural. I don't know. Like that. We saw that whether whether we go forward and like spend a lot of time talking about it and processing it. My, my guess would be Americans not not going to do that like mainstream American culture, not the best at processing trauma. And also we we talked before about how like when you look back at the historical record, the 1911 pandemic was basically just like it, it didn't really leave a mark. Like people didn't write that many novels about it. But then, you know, there people have speculated that it led to all sorts of like kind of under the under the surface yeah. cultural movements and stuff that it, it'll be interesting but i do agree like there's a healthy way to do it and we probably won't be doing that yeah i mean miles i'm i'm glad you said that because i i think it was a few, you know maybe a month or so ago there was just a lot of consternation about if you're vaccinated take off your mask and just a lot of pressure and a lot of people sort of taking these weird stands about like wearing a mask and 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 giving people a hard time for still wearing a mask you know and and i had the same reaction which is like this has been a really, really tough year. If it's going to take someone a couple weeks to get to the place where they're comfortable taking off their mask or if they're going to be like unsure of what to do, like let them be unsure. Let them be uncomfortable like a couple weeks. Like this is going to work itself out. And and like, why is that the hill that people feel this desire to, to die on? This like this has to happen now. and We have to draw these bright lines now. We have to flip this binary switch like. I'm incredibly excited to get back to the normal things. I'm incredibly excited to rip off my mask. Like, I, you know, I don't like wearing a freaking mask. But, like, this idea that I would um, give someone a hard time if it's going to take them a few weeks or they're going to have to, you know, slow, slowly ease their way back into things. Um, it's it's bizarre and sort of like, yeah, there's no humanity to it. And I think you're right. 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 Yeah. It, and I, even with the mask thing, it's sort of like, you know what? Have It, it completely ignores that so many people know someone yeah. whether directly or indirectly probably someone that's passed away because yeah. of covid yeah. and or no has someone that is experiencing long covid or you know i know people who are still on oxygen like from time to time because it's still not they haven't quite fully recovered all of those things play into people's minds because that's what the reality has been the last year it's not like god my whole last year has been me inside just playing Fortnite over and over and over again. And I just wish I could go outside and just like start drinking at Applebee's again. Like <laughs> it's been fraught for many people, which has been like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my kids. I don't know what to do with my house or my job. I don't know if my parents are going to survive. And it's also freaky for me to try and see them because on top of that, I have 
the, the weight of potentially infecting them because I don't, you know, like all of these things have been thoughts that have been racing through, well, I think a lot of people's minds and especially for people who have had to go to work throughout it, they've felt that they've been forced to work in really unsafe conditions. Their, their safety has been completely disregarded and no one, there's no consideration for that. And then there's no acknowledgement that they were putting themselves at risk this whole time too. And then it's sort of like, yeah, man, everything's great, huh? Right. And there's just something that I just, I, I don't know why, like you'd hope that on some level there were like mental health professionals that were also being like, people are going to have to sort of deal with what's happening because I do see this leftover trauma that's occurred from the pandemic. Like, yeah, metastasizing into something else later down the road because sure. people didn't deal with all this other energy they had that was just papered I, over in the name of like getting back to normal. Or right, something. Not down the road. I mean, yeah, it metastasized yeah, yeah. in real time right. last year, right? We saw, yeah. you know, we saw the results of, of what, what this did to us as people were cooped up and yeah, um, the, unable to connect with each other. Yeah. I mean, the mask became a symbol of like anti-individualism, I feel like, uh, for a lot of people in the country and like they reacted absolutely violently. I do wonder if we'll see a because, I mean, there there's no avoiding the fact that we just saw the social safety net just completely collapse. And yeah, it was made of spider webs. Right. And it was made clear, you know, who who is prioritized in America. And I you've seen like small ways that things have moved a little bit leftward, like just allowing people to make more money and kind of service jobs. But it's like you really people have had to have their hand forced like Chipotle had to have their hand forced to do that after the pandemic. But I am wondering if like, but that is how change happens. Yeah. Right? I'm I wondering mean, if I, that's know. going to be a broader thing, right? Like right. that's everybody now has this new normal where they're like, Oh yeah, this is, this is bullshit. Like it's not, there are certain circumstances where we can't pull ourselves out of the, quicksand by our own bootstraps and you know we need to we need something there to to grab onto and it, it wasn't there so like well i i mean i'll tell you something i think about a lot which is in the last spring and then even into this spring but certainly the first round of stimulus you know i was really surprised to be honest that like in the conversation around the first round of stimulus and then biden's first round of stimulus as well it was really kind of taken as a given that there is a robust role for government in helping people in times of crisis. And that is not something this country has kind of like taken as for granted, you know. And and so, I mean, I think there is some sort of level of progress there. I mean, and then there was another example that is there was there was some Republican congressperson or senator or someone just fairly recently who tried to trot out that Reagan line of the scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right. And they basically got laughed out of the room, I think kind of by both right. right and left. And I think it was an indication like that kind of language doesn't play anymore. Like people are starting to really take for granted, I think across this, the spectrum or whatever you want to call whatever we're living in right now, that there is a role for government. And so I do think like maybe that's one of the lasting things. I, you know, and who knows how long lasting is, but, you know, at least yeah. right now it feels like it's out there. I'm sure we'll see another squeeze and, you know, action from people as, you know, certain Republican governors begin turn saying no to federal stimulus money yeah. for unemployment and see what comes out of that when they say, all right, well, let's take 50,000 people completely off of this right. uh, and force them into jobs that don't even meet the, you know, what most economists say is the minimum to live in a state. Um, and if you have a child, like it's not even close. So, yeah, I'm. I think, but that's the other thing is like, I think there are other people too have found boundaries too or something, or at least it, they've become more resolute in trying to say what they want, are willing to do or not willing to do, or at least express that more openly. Mm -hmm. Because I think before this, everything was just sort of like, oh God, this, whatever this given job sucks, there's nothing I can do about it. That's it. And now I think because unfortunately people have been taken to the brink that right. they're starting to be more vocal and say, you know what, I'm I, watch me say no to this job. That's how serious I am about not taking sub subsistence wages to keep my life going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's sort of a hacky metaphor, but I do feel like we're living in a bit of a era where people are seeing the the matrix a little bit and are seeing the, the sort of way in which government um, 
and historical forces align to affect their day-to-day lives and are asking right. sort of fundamental questions about that. Which That's why I'm always talking about how we try to red pill people. Exactly. That's a metaphor that uh, we think works really well for the daily zeitgeist, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're hoping people get it. Yeah. And you keep breaking I'm your Trying to reclaim matrix <laughs> metaphors here. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. And uh, Darnella Frazier, who was the 17-year-old who took the the video of Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd, uh, has been honored by the Pulitzer board. It's, I guess it's not a full Pulitzer. I don't know, like all the different levels of Pulitzer. It's a citation, uh, which sounds bad. It sounds bad. You don't want to be, you don't <laughs> yeah, want a citation. Cited. But this is, it's an honor. She she's one of the only kind of private citizens to get it. I guess the famous photograph of the firemen holding like pulling a baby out of the rubble in the Oklahoma City bombing was also taken by just like somebody who worked nearby. And that person got a similar like Pulitzer honor. But this seems like it's on a whole new level like that. (laughs) I don't know. I can't. I can't think of anything more deserving of a Pulitzer. Like, she was just a kid going to get snacks at a corner store and just, I mean, had to stand in the face of, like, them holding onto their, like, pepper spray and just, like, doing all sorts of threatening shit, like, to her and just, like, kept taking the video and, like, really changed yeah. the world it's like a pulitzer even enough no you know i feel like, <laughs> like not yeah in right. terms of like i get it because it's more you know it's for like you know journalism and literature and music and things like that and like this is some it almost transcends all of those things because it yeah i, I to unfortunately it took this like unadulterated uncut video of this happening to inspire like a lot of other people who were probably were treating the like this the white supremacist ills that we experience in this country is just like I don't know like not real until that moment, and it it just seems like it's so far beyond. I mean, because considering like the amount of sort of danger she was in for a certain period of time, like right after that, and the trauma that she had to go through, and just other people who were there at the time trying to uh, plead with the police. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the idea that Chauvin, while while ignoring the cries of bystanders and murdering someone just in cold blood, like in front of everybody as they asked him to stop, pulled out his mace like that is like who who is that for? That's probably for the people who are just standing there. And she just didn't move. She didn't let it uh, make her run away. It's yeah. I mean, I think like the yeah, I think the citation here is. Uh, the, the sort of surface level is this this photo had an enormous obviously an enormous yeah. impact but i do think what you what you two are getting at this that what she did uh, um was 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 journalism right it's truth telling it's standing there and bearing witness and so i think that that's the sort of real level of of commendation here citation here and i also just think this is a reminder another reminder in this moment that like if her video did not exist Chauvin would have gotten off. I yeah. mean, we've all seen how the original police report was written up. Yeah. You know, we're living that, you know, incident. Uh, yeah, we're living in a sort of era that is defined by whether if, you know, if police behavior is captured on on a cell phone video, then that that's, you know, that changes everything. And that's sort of one of the defining features of this era. And so I think of this. This moment, this award, this citation to her um, as a reminder of just kind of like the power of starting with, you know, starting at this point, almost 10 years ago, just the sea change of everyone having a, a camera in their pocket um, right. and what that's done. And still, it's like so rare for me to pull out my camera like that. It just really puts into perspective like right. how common these sorts of things must be, like the the number of times that something like what Derek Chauvin did or worse happens that it doesn't get captured on camera. Like that, I also think about that with the Walter Scott murder where the cop shot him as he was running away in the back and then just like walked up and planted evidence like that is 
it's wild that somebody happened to be just like taking a video of that, like from, you know, 20 feet away. It's mm-hmm. truly unbelievable. And, you know, an amazing stroke of luck that just goes to prove like, God, how frequently is this happening when like the one in a million chance that somebody has their camera out at that moment isn't yeah. in effect. Yeah. Kind of bums you out, though, too, because you have mounds of body cam footage that are just as incriminating in a lot of cases, too. But somehow in like these other cases, the needle doesn't move. And yeah, I think for for all that's happened just shows just the insurmountable. I don't know. It just almost feels it's just like this mountain. We're still at the, the foot of of trying mm-hmm. to ascend because there's still so many obstacles to actually bring people who are abusing their power to justice. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that. Darnella Frazier, I believe this award, it's a special citation, but it comes with the same prize money as all the other awards. Um, It's not a ton of money, but, you know, it is worth pointing that out. Yeah. Okay. real quickly, I I do kind of just want to get because I've been getting questions and like comments from people saying, like, come on, we have enough problems here on Earth. Why are you covering this like unidentified aerial phenomenon uh, or you know, submerged phenomenon nonsense. And I just, I kind of want to just get, have that conversation on on the show, like about like Miles, what your thoughts are on like, whether it's worth continuing to like, kind of keep an eye on. And also Jody as somebody who hosts a history podcast, like what, how, how do you view like the importance or like just even the conversation around the video evidence that's coming out? I think it's compelling. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, no one's saying this footage is fake. Right. That's what I. And so that based because of that, my curiosity is I'm immediately interested to say, well, what is going on? Yeah. What is this? Why are things moving like that? Is it a technology we don't know? Is it some other thing? But at the very least, I'm interested because it goes against fucking everything I thought that was realistic or possible or plausible up until this point or like you know it was always treated as things like get over it it's just some other thing that happened but i don't know when you see this all all this footage and then you on top of it the pentagon's like help us right i'm definitely interested i don't know if it's i don't think it's like frivolous to talk about it necessarily but i think it's i don't know it seems pretty significant unless what at the end of the day it comes out and they're like ah they were all fake yeah like then 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 yeah then it was what what were we talking about this whole time but well, I, don't, I, don't I think even in that scenario, it's a worthwhile conversation. I mean, I think that I think the disconnect and maybe, Jack, you're, you're, you're hearing a little bit of this is just that for some reason, there's this expectation that, oh, we haven't talked about UFOs for so long and, and the conversation about them have been sort of relegated off into the corner. And now we're finally tearing the top off. And that means that we should uh, there should be a big definitive answer at the end of that. And like, right. we're not going to we're not going to get that anytime soon. It yeah. doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile conversation or it's not interesting, especially if you you have a host a daily podcast and you got to fill 45 minutes every day. <laughs> and what else are you going to do? Oh, you know? We can well, we can fill it with all kinds of nonsense. More oh, frivolous we're filling it UAPs. With, we're filling it with conversations about whether we about should have conversations. conversations right oh, so hey, this is the meta stroke. level that yeah. I love. Yes. <laughs> but no, I mean, I you know, I I have found it endlessly fascinating and also incredibly confounding like i don't feel any more like i know more with a capital k uh no yeah. more any you know now than i did but i find it interesting to think about i feel like everything and, else we sort of have a historical corollary for or yeah. you can at least like think about it in the context of history and this one is just we we don't <laughs> it's just right. we it's well yeah you mentioned very briefly at the beginning of this project I did called Death at the Wing. It is with this guy, Adam McKay, who's one of my favorite sort of directors, and he's just a brilliant guy. And he has this production company. I know this is sort of circuitous, but he has this production company called Hyper Object Industries. A hyper object is a thing, as I'm probably going to butcher this, you'll have some sci-fi geeks get in touch with you about the actual definition. But, you know, it's basically a, a like thing that doesn't have context. It just arrives, and you do not know how to place it. And, you know, I think... Climate change is one of those things that's just like there is not a historical precedent for coming around yeah. to understand. It. I would argue, actually, like the level of wealth inequality we're seeing in this country is sort of a hyper object. Like we just don't have the language to process what it means to be a multi, multi, multi billionaire and what that does to us. 
I think the UFO thing is sort of the same. Like there is not a continuum of conversations that uh, that prep us for this. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like yeah. we don't, we're we're beyond the we're beyond the looking glass here. Jack, you're a modern day Copernicus, man. That's how I'd look at That's, it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're totally. challenging like, oh wow, geocentricity, okay. <laughs> I'm a modern day uh Copernicus groupie. Who's like, yo, Copernicus? <laughs> we love you. <laughs> we love you, Copernicus. So one thing that I think is uh, tied up in like my interest in this is the the idea that if this is real, there is like some hopefulness that that like there is this scientific continuum that keeps going beyond like what we currently know. And whoever is at that level beyond what we currently know has decided not to kill us <laughs> like that. There's something right. like almost like uh, religiously like optimistic about that idea to me that like is basically contained in any version of this that isn't just uh that this was somebody uh doing fake photography and somehow fooling a bunch of fighter jet pilots yeah and i think i think some people push back though too because a lot of the shit that's discussed about you know aliens or ufos is like art bell type shit where it's a little bit like you know coming out of like left field and you're like eh, i don't know is this like for real this guy said he was on a navy ship in the 70s and stuff so i'm like okay let's everything felt like it was just sort of these like this oral tradition of like you know people saying they saw stuff but i think that's what makes this really interesting is that we're we're going to like what the government is saying like no this is this is the real footage this right. is what has happened. It's documented. And we're still saying we're not sure what we're looking at. And I feel like um, any, I think that gives a little bit more sort of fuel to it. I think there would be art bells uh, or, you know, any uh, if there was any like real event that was treated as the way that UFO and alien, you know, culture is treated. Like, I feel like anyway, if you were just like baseball doesn't exist and the military's official position was like, yeah, there's no such thing as baseball. And the only people like pe people who had been to games were the only sources of information. And like you couldn't like I, I just feel like any observable thing that was treated by the military, like so many of these pilots are now being like, yeah, we see it every day. And we just were scared of like being called crazy. So we didn't do it like that's such a profound stigma to like try and then create like build a body of information around like so sure. yeah the baseball I, metaphor I, was uh, a it, nightmare i did not but, get that at all no terrible um uh, but i really admired your you're going for it. <laughs> You're saying it's bigger than baseball. It's bigger than yes. baseball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Finally, let's let's talk about uh, what's going on with the Girl Scouts, real quick. Some some pandemic related problems. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, many look. Many industries, governments had uh, their deficiencies exposed during this uh, pandemic, and I guess the Girl Scouts aren't safe either. But, like this story first, I just saw that they had. They did terribly with Girl Scout cookie sales last year. Mm -hmm. They have 15 million unsold boxes, which is like mm -hmm. never happened before. They're like everyone's scratching their heads of the, a lot of the people at these like at the local council level up to the like the national level have different, I guess, competing ideas around this. At the highest level, they say, look, it was a global pandemic that was unprecedented. Like, what do you that's why we have that's why we have this surplus of cookies. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. Like you, the traditional ways of selling weren't available yeah because going I think to the it grocery makes sense. store like where they have the folding table out in front yeah. with a girl yeah, co-worker co who has a kid yeah, who's, i mean yeah it's all Which, just informal like foot traffic like yeah and it's all like networks there's typically just whatever you just exploit your own social network to just being like yeah let me just crank out a bunch of uh boxes being sold so that's the one that's the sort of overarching idea then other people point to like problems that are a little bit bigger within the Girl Scouts that they said, you know, over the last 12 years, the membership has declined from two and a half million to one point eight million. And some say they said because the Boy Scouts have like began to rebrand and change their policy that just that'll also allow like anyone to join now, not just boys, that it's also siphoning away some of their membership like is like the more conspiratorial. It's like it's the Boy Scouts. <laughs> they're, they're, they're messing up our recruitment. I think the other there's a few other things though too that I think might make sense. Wait, wait. Like, the argument there though is that there are not literally not enough 
boots on the ground for the Girl Scouts to move the product. Essentially, <laughs> like that's one yeah. because this we is where it gets soldiers. A yeah, yeah, this we is where soldiers it's on the corners. Exactly, <laughs> everyone. The cookies. Yeah. Exactly, and then they come back to the like throw a tennis ball across the street, <laughs> and then you throw up a hand signal so you know how many thin mints to give <laughs> the, the custies. Yeah. But the other thing that's really interesting is that whole like at the end of the last year that the huge stories that were coming out about palm oil production and how it's used as child labor. It's terrible for the environment, and it's also like a huge ingredient in Girl Scout cookies, and. That led some troop leaders in certain jurisdictions, certain parts of the country say, you know what? We don't want to use our children to sell products that were created by children. Huh. Interesting. Um, so that's like another reason they said some some people were so woke. But then I think a lot of people also just point to the fact, like you're saying, there's no when people aren't going into an office. Yeah. You're not able to just foist just tens of boxes on coworkers and people like that. And also... They say that just overall, like over the last 10 years, there's so much more options for kids for things they can do, like and what they want to put their energy. And it's not always going to be Girl Scouts. Like now there's like year round sports. I'll tell you what. (laughs) (laughs) Rotting their damn brains. They they seem like a a confluence. Yeah, that that, uh, this feels like an Occam's Razor situation where it's just we were not together and sort of Girl Scout cookies are, uh, you know. A, a social product. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, that seems like the answer to me. Yeah. 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 And I just don't know. I, I think also, I don't I feel like over the years, I've slowly began to look at Girl Scout cookies with more contempt, just in terms of like, I'm like they're not, they don't hit the same. Like this. Not as good. Was it because I was a kid and I was like, uh, you know, it was like a, the one thing that like those sweets that my parents would like let me have because it's like, we're supporting my friend at right. school who wants them. But then now, like, I remember just like some of the newer flavors just don't sit right with me. I don't know. I, I don't know if maybe my palate is I've just Evolved. gone beyond the Girl Scout cookies now. Yeah. Also, like, I mean, why don't they just collapse? Like, I'm sure it will become increasingly weird for the Scouts to be gendered by like Boy Scout, Girl Scout. Like, right. What? And the Boy Scouts changed their name to Scouts BSA. I don't know why they kept it. As kept the initials of Boy Scouts of America, but like it, it seems like that is probably the next move is just to like collapse them. And but uh, I don't know the fact that that's not even being part of the conversation suggests to me that maybe I'm too naive for this Cub Scouts game. <laughs> All right, you might well, be. Yeah. Well, Jody, uh, such a pleasure having you, man. Where yeah. can uh, people find you, follow you, hear you, all that good stuff? I appreciate you uh, uh, asking that. Uh, people can listen to This Day in Esoteric Political History. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, wherever you get your podcast, it's a Radiotopia show. So, um, you know, you can find us there. And then I I am on Twitter, at uh, Jody Avergan, and uh, you can find me there, too. Nice. And is there a tweet or some other work of social media you've been enjoying? I actually do have one Instagram account that I really do want to recommend that I've been enjoying the hell out of lately. And it's called, it's the, the account is Ballhouse. If you just Google Ballhouse in Instagram, it's like got some weird spelling, but if you Google it, you'll find it. But it's a, it's this guy who does side-by-side images of photos from the NBA with like master artwork next to it that sort of look the same. I mean, it's, it's very hard to describe, but he finds these, these wow. synergies and connections. So have a, he'll have a photo from last night's playoff game with like a Degas right next to it and they look almost exactly the same. Or, you know, he'll have like a de Kooning and then a photo of James Harden. And <laughs> he just has this ability to, to, to make these mashups and find these connections. It's like, uh, I, it has, as it, in any just world, this would have like 5 million followers. And right now I think yeah. it's like 2000, but it is wow. amazing. This, these are. Yo, amazing. you seeing this? Yeah, yeah. and They're it's spelled like so... Bauhaus. The house yeah. is spelled like Bauhaus, so it's right. it's and it's all underscore. So it's B underscore A underscore L underscore L underscore H underscore A underscore U underscore S. Got it. But it and is if, brilliant. If you know if if you like art at all, not that you don't even have to know anything about art, but if you feel things looking at works of art, this is actually it's yeah the way he's sort of distilling yeah. a lot of these images and then finding like these parallels and fine art is yeah i like this yeah it's like pretty this. great it's pretty great awesome. thank you it was one of those things when i discovered it i like immediately emailed and texted 
everywhere. <laughs> right. Uh, so I'm trying to spread the word. It's one of those. Get in early. Uh, Miles, where can people find you and what's a social media work you've been enjoying? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Miles of Gray, and also the other podcast, 420 Day Fiance. You could check us out on twitch.tv slash 420 Day Fiance. We're talking 90 Day Fiance, if it wasn't clear. And, uh, you know, I'm not really, I'm kind of in the same boat. You know, I was talking to my therapist. I'm like, you know, sometimes you you're, you're get your you get your wheels going, spinning too fast when you're on that social media. So I just want to shout out an account on TikTok of this really fantastic drummer who plays like drum and bass and like jungle type beats like on a kit and has like all these like really great symbols to give you all kinds of like reverse symbol sounds and stuff. Mm. And he's playing it all live. And so it's a combination of social because you get to watch it, but then you get a little tunage. And the count is called Ned Drums 123. Oh, that's shit. on TikTok. I think he has an Instagram account, but you can see this dude just get just nasty on the kit playing like what is traditionally, you know, traditionally like sampled electronic beats. So, yeah, check that out. Uh, tweet I've been enjoying. Josh Gondelman, just in general, has been very funny on Twitter lately. He tweeted, it's unreal that the public bathroom air hand dryer industry, a.k.a. the airborne germ blowing around industry, survived the past year and a half. They must have the most powerful lobby in Washington. <laughs> and then George Wallace, Mr. George Wallace, classic tweeter and comedian tweeted I grew up so poor we could only listen to Cool or The Gang um, <laughs> uh, he's the best really Ma? you were feeling that? <laughs> <laughs> that did it for me uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore O'Brien you can find us on Twitter at Daily Zeitgeist we're at The Daily Zeitgeist on Instagram we have a Facebook fan page and a website, dailyzeitgeist.com, where we post our episodes and our footnotes. Footnotes. We link off to the information that we talked about in today's episode, as well as a song we think you might enjoy. Miles, what are we sending people toward? More hiatus, Coyote. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't been listening, come on now. Get into it. Hi and Coyote is spelled K-A-I-Y-O-T-E. They're my favorite band. Right now, they are so solid on their instruments. I say that every time as someone who plays bass and trumpet and wannabe drummer. I'm always impressed with the instrumentation. This track is called Chivalry Is Not Dead. And it's just, their songs are so like rich with the sounds that they use and like even how they go into odd meter at times. So check this out, Chivalry Is Not Dead. Can't believe they have a song named after my catchphrase. Chivalry is not dead, ladies. Uh, the Daily Zeitgeist is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. That's going to do it for us this morning. We're back this afternoon to tell you what's trending, and we'll talk to you all then. Bye. Bye. Bye.